Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Great to have you here. Stuff happened this week, so let's work through it together with three estimable local journalists. Business insider, senior tech reporter, Catherine Long. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Hey, it's great to be here, Bill. Political analyst and contributing columnist, Joni Balter. Welcome. Good to see you all. And you, Kitsap's son, military and Bremerton reporter, Josh Farley. Hiya, Josh. Hey, Bill. Good to see you again. Good to see you, and I do see you, and and, and so can listeners. We can uh, see one another if you'll just uh, go to YouTube or Facebook, where we are live streaming the show. You just search KOW Public Radio. I've got uh, this is a Christmas sweater I've got on right now. I didn't know what to. I don't. This week we had uh, four feet of snow on Mount Baker, and then quickly <laughs> seventy three degrees of Fahrenheit here in Seattle. So uh, I don't know where I am right now. Except with you. Glad to be here. I could also use a haircut. Uh, we're on <laughs> Facebook and YouTube. Let's, uh, let's, let's move on from that important business to uh, actually the news of the week. Amazon is, as expected, filing objections to last week's union vote. You know that last Friday, Amazon warehouse workers in Staten Island became the first ever to make that vote. Now Amazon's claiming they were coerced by the union into voting yes. Catherine, you're reporting on this. Is Amazon making a minor procedural filing here, or is this a big, uh, a big uh, blow to the union movement? Where, where are we on this big story? I think it's somewhere in between. You know, we expect the parties that lose union elections to file objections to the conduct of those elections, mm -hmm. try to get the elections rerun on uh, maybe better terms for <laughs> whoever's doing the doing the objecting. Yep. Uh, Amazon's objection, I think, is somewhat uh, unique in that in addition to objecting to the, the union's conduct, Amazon is also claiming that the, the entire election itself was rigged basically, by the National Labor Relations Board, the federal agency that uh, oversees collective bargaining and enforces workers' rights to unionize. Uh, that's not uh, an argument that uh, companies typically make, but uh, we'll see in the, next, in the next several weeks whether it's one that uh, gains any traction as it, as it goes up before the board to weigh the merits. I'm glad you brought up the, the National Labor Relations Board. There are so many forces here, economic forces and Business forces, cultural forces, and the federal agency, you know, that the, the NLRB can 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 change the situation, um, all of which uh, uh, leads up to me, Catherine, wanting to get a sense from you of this this very surprising. Yes, union vote in New York and then all these other factors at play. How where are we in the in the American labor movement right now? What is your take on on uh, the spread of union votes, Amazon, Starbucks, et cetera? You know, it's it's an exciting time to be covering labor issues. We're seeing such an upswell of interest in in unionizing. And, you know, I, I don't think this is a flash in the pan either. You know, there's the, the union votes that have taken place at Starbucks. We've had 17 votes so far. 16 of those have been successful. That's that's a stupendously high win percentage for the union. Unions typically expect to win about 60% of the votes. This union has won more than 90%. Um, the support for unions among young people in particular is uh, very high. It's something like 69% of people ages 18 to 30 are in favor of unions. That uh, favorability percentage drops off sharply um, as people age. Uh, I think that we're seeing some real backlash to the pandemic, 
workers being forced or compelled to work in conditions that they were scared to work in, workers being compelled to, to work despite, um, you know, this deadly disease, especially at the beginning of 2020, uh, is combined with uh, a, a rise in, in wealth inequality. You know, Jeff Bezos going up to space, uh, thanking the workers who paid for his trip to space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw that uh, come back to really bite him in the butt <laughs> on Friday uh, with the union win. You know, the union leader, Chris Small, says, while Bezos was up in space, we were down here organizing a union. Yes. Okay, well, we got a lot of issues to get into here. Uh, Joni, let me move to you next. Questions, reactions, what's your take on this big uh, union movement news? Well, it's it's profound. Uh, you know, never before in our lifetimes have unions and, and would-be unions been in such a positive position. Clearly, workers rule right now. They have the upper hand. Uh, just a couple numbers. The U.S. added 431,000 jobs in March. Unemployment is now below 4%, all of which makes me think these unionizing movements will have more success. I agree with you, Catherine. Uh, this is true definitely in blue states and maybe because there is some momentum now even in uh, Alabama if you compare the numbers in their two votes. Uh, it may even uh, happen in red states. You know, the labor movement, movement has been in retreat for a long time. That's part of the reason why the middle class has been shrinking, part of the explanation for income inequality. And so these grassroots, and grassroots is a key word here, uh, efforts are striking. Um, uh, The reason they're striking while the iron is hot, you know, this is their moment. And referring to that, this, this new model uh, of organizing may be emerging. So these were really in many of the cases, uh, the successful ones, uh, organic homegrown unions rising up uh, from the workers themselves. It wasn't some big union comes in and tells everybody, here's how you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think it's a fascinating time. I think the unions clearly have their moment here right now. Uh, the pandemic preci- precipitated the great resignation. So it was workers saying, you know, I'm willing to walk away from all of this if it doesn't get better. Josh, what are you seeing? I would just echo uh, both Joni and, and Catherine here and saying, you know, I think what are we at? A, it's, it's actually nowhere to grow, but but kind of up. Uh, we're at the low point for the percentage of uh, in the private sector of, of unionized workers, I think six percent or so, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but it seems like, yeah, an atmosphere of where where we have a president that supports unions um, and, and an economy again um, that is, uh, you know, that's desperate to see. Uh, employers that are desperate to have, uh, you know, um, positions filled. It sure seems like we're heading in that direction. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear actually more from Catherine on on the idea of this being a longer term trend. And one of the things that I've been wondering about is, you know, uh, uh, Amazon, of course, is no it is is been working in the within drones, um, within further ways of automating the workforce. And I wonder, um, after he- hearing uh, you yesterday, Catherine, on with Patricia Murphy about the the idea that um, that mechanization and the delay tactics here um, could could buy time for this for the science. And what does that mean? What it, what does it mean if essentially robots, if AI um, can do more of this work, what does that mean um, for how Amazon could potentially push back uh, in this movement. 
Yeah, Josh, this is a really interesting question. You know, Amazon has been uh, working to automate a lot of the uh, the functions in its warehouses for years now. Uh, the company has always said that robots will never replace humans. Um, that being said, uh, you know, it's invested heavily in, in robotic and automated solutions in its warehouses that have made it easier for the company to... Um, to get products to, to, to us, to customers, <laughs> faster than we've ever seen before. Um, you mentioned drones, uh, Amazon's Prime Air drone delivery program. You know, I think a lot of observers initially thought that that was maybe a, a boondoggle when Jeff Bezos announced it in 2013. Uh, my colleague Eugene Kim and I reported the past this past week that Amazon is taking the first public step towards launching that drone delivery program. It's going to start recruiting uh, customers uh, in two small towns in California and Texas to try to to test those drone deliveries in in action in real life and you know it's it's expensive it's going to cost about sixty three dollars per package for Amazon to make this happen the drones themselves cost one hundred fifty thousand dollars each but those costs are expected to fall and and those drones could really potentially prove to be a solution to what logistics experts call the last mile of delivery, getting packages from delivery stations to people's doorsteps, cutting out some of the delivery drivers that have been a real headache occasionally for Amazon, especially from a public relations standpoint. We've heard stories of drivers peeing in bottles, uh, drivers causing car accidents. Uh, the, the sheer pace of that drivers are expected to work has been highlighted, uh, I think, to Amazon's detriment uh, in the press. Yeah, but I wonder sometimes, do we really want these drones sort of in the low, low level sky? Do we really want that? Is that, mm-hmm. you know, it's probably it's probably more climate friendly. It could be more climate friendly than trucks doing that last mile. But what about the, the visuals of that? And what about the safety of that? You could see people using their BB guns on some of these, uh, you know, flying baby diapers. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean I think safety is is a real concern. These drones are not the drones that have uh, you know cameras on them. Maybe you see buzzing around the park. These are 89 pound pieces of machinery floating up in the sky. Uh, I, I reported recently on a, a series of drone crashes um, that Amazon incurred while testing its those those drone deliveries, including one that sparked a 20 acre fire in eastern Oregon hmm. when the drone caught fire after it crashed. You know, I think I, I think, you know, if Amazon manages to roll this out, I am positive that uh, they will do so with high safety standards. I don't know if that is necessarily going to be reassuring on a visceral standpoint for people to see these, uh, you know, spinning rotors flying around in the sky all over the place. Yeah, I was not planning to uh, use a BB gun on flying diapers. But now that Joni's planted it in my head, I'm having trouble getting it, getting the visual out. Um, what about we haven't said much about Starbucks, but um, uh, that's 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 happening nationwide and locally, as we've heard. And uh, there was this uh, young shift supervisor and labor organizer who got fired by the company. And I think she was uh, procedurally officially fired for doing some audio recording, but here's a little snippet of what she recorded in a confrontation between her and uh, and her boss. I demanded that a shift was covered. No, I did not demand. I asked you, I said, can you please? So the word using demanded, you know how bad that makes me feel? I would never demand anything. Cross that word out. We can no, just but out. it's just the words you do that. I deserve more respect. 
you can hear some piano creeping in there because this is part of a sort of a produced package. I saw this on Twitter. But Catherine, what do you want to say about where Starbucks labor movement stands here? You know, I think the Starbucks labor movement has has been um, really exciting. It's an interesting organizing model. Uh, the, the union that's that's organizing many of these Starbucks stores, Workers United, is affiliated with a much larger union, uh, SEIU. Uh, but it's it's sort of taken the approach of trying to funnel resources towards uh, individual workers in these stores who are undertaking the vast majority of the organizing work, uh, letting letting workers really lead the way. Um, and that's a that's a model that labor experts have said for decades is really the one that unions should try to pursue if at all possible. Um, you know, I, I said earlier that we've seen 16 Starbucks union wins uh, out of 17 that have uh, had their votes counted so far. That's a, a very high win rate. Um, I think that the, you know, this union campaign is just proving to be kind of a, a public relations disaster for Starbucks. They brought back Howard Schultz. He's kind of made some noise about going on a listening tour. And then he's also talking about getting into the business of minting NFTs. Yeah. I think Starbucks is, you know, it's it's scrambling a little bit to try to address this upswell of, of organizing and labor activism in its workforce. Well, it sounds like we could talk about labor unions uh, for, for a long time in the future. Before we move on to something else, any final words, any observations that any uh, other guests want to make about uh, labor movement 2022? Well, I thought it was interesting, something Josh said. Um, we all heard the president say this week, Amazon, here we come. And I started thinking yeah. about, you know, the politics of this. And so if you think about it, politically, Amazon doesn't have any other place to go but the Democrats in general. You know, if Trump wins again, Trump spent a, a lot of his first term using Jeff Bezos as a sort of punching bag, Amazon as well. Uh, so for that and other reasons, like the politics of its own workers, they can't really align with the Republicans. Uh, employees are motivated by issues of equity, uh, climate change, you know, climate pledge arena. That's that's from Amazon. They, they have to stay in line with their employees. So I thought that was very interesting that Biden, it cost him absolutely nothing to, to fire off that line. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, Joni, just just on that note, I was uh, thinking how that line must have been received in Amazon's headquarters, where Amazon's public policy chief, Jay Carney, used to be Biden's press secretary. Right. Yeah, right. So they're right. all buds. They're all buds. So it's like no harm, no foul type stuff. It seems like it's got a wink, wink, wink to it for me. Hmm. This just in Amazon endorses Mitt Romney for uh, the president <laughs> next go around. No, I don't know about that. OK, let's. OK, um, but Mitt Romney had a good week. <laughs> Mitt Romney. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, voting one of the three Republicans voting for Tanji Brown Jackson uh, being confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. By the way, since we're now since we're just rattling off other news stories, I just got a notification that uh, Will Smith is banned from attending the Oscars for the next 10 years. So you're welcome. You have the very latest on the slap. Okay, we're running down. Mostly local news is kind of what we do here on Week in Review. And we've got Joni Balter here and Josh Farley and Catherine Long. And, uh, and we're, I can see them, uh, as you can, because we're live streaming on YouTube and Facebook. And we're going to take a, just a pause here and come right back for more Week in Review. Don't go away. You're with Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and I'm with the Kitsap Sons, Josh Farley, and contributing columnist Joni Balter and business insiders Catherine Long, breaking down the news of the week 
for you. And our next topic today, the city of Seattle is reporting that violent crime is up by a third compared to a year ago. So let's talk about causes and solutions. Joni Balter, why there's a lot of opinions out there. Why do you think this uh, increase in crime is happening? Well, there are certainly a lot of sociological and perhaps psychological issues related to the pandemic, like mental illness. But what we're seeing in Seattle are the criminals, the car theft rings, the burglars are capitalizing on some of the anger and rage that maybe came out of the pandemic and some of the defund police movements in cities, especially like Seattle. It's probably time to admit that the defund movement here didn't work for us, because if you see these numbers now, you know that um, the city is sort of not fully prepared to deal with the results of all this crime, you know, to handle it. Our police department is down something like 370 officers over the last couple of years. So that's a lot. Uh, We do have um, a new mayor, Bruce Harrell, and a new council member, Sarah Nelson. They're certainly setting a different tone for the city. The mayor's been in office three months now. Sarah Nelson as well. Um, and the city's taking some steps to make us safer, but I don't, I don't, I don't think we have the, uh, the deliverables yet on that. Catherine, your reaction, your take? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't cover crime, so I'm, I'm coming at this from a, <laughs> a different angle here. Right. But, you know, when I think about crime rates in, in Seattle, I think about uh, when my parents moved to the city in 1990, uh, they, they moved here on the advice of their friends who said it was a great place to raise a family. The, the quality of life was fantastic. And that was the year when we had 1,500 violent crime incidences per 100,000 residents. That's twice what it is right now. Mm. Uh, you know, so, so some of this maybe strikes me as um, uh, obviously there's violent crime is, is rising. I wonder how much of it is a perception problem, though. Mm. Uh, Joni, since you were bringing up some of that, uh, some of that reaction and perception, what what is your what is your take on that? Well, my thought is there's certainly a a difference uh, between crime and the perception of crime. But I'll um, sign up here with Danny Westney, who wrote, why would we want to go back 30 years in, in all the progress that we've made? That's not a good number. Nobody liked it at the time. And so there's no reason to kind of idealize that as something that we'd want to return to. Uh, especially if you consider the age. Uh, we have 16 homicides in the city since the beginning of the year. Uh, something like half of them are in their teens and 20s. So the people who are the targets of some of this, um, if they're not worried about it, maybe maybe they should be and the other folks shouldn't be or something. But, you know, we do we do have to deal with with what ha- what is happening right now with the problem we as as we've been presented with it. And so I do see a few new steps. You have a city attorney who I never thought could be elected in this town. She has something called the close in time plan, where you prosecute people closer to the the date of the incident rather than putting them at the back of the line of people you're working on. And that within five business days, that is. So, you know, we need we need to revamp how we how we handle this and we need to hire more police officers. And I know that's a controversial sentence, but uh you know, we really don't have the police presence to help many of our small business people of all ages who feel really threatened and really vulnerable. Uh, just an anecdote, a businessman on um, Capitol Hill was talking about 
how he was not in his shop one day, but the, but some folks came in and maced his employees. And, you know, people have to be comfortable going to work. They have to feel like, you know, they're safe in their city. I mean, we, we've been through this before, that's right. But we know that um, when you have public safety, you have the ability to sort of grow the economy, bring people back to downtown, um, just, you know, have an overall sense of well-being for your city. Very important. Josh Farley, what do you want us to know? Well, I think it's interesting that on the property crimes front, we have seen certainly on, in this side of the water and in the state uh, as, on a whole, you know, uh, quite a rise. Uh, I looked at car theft recently for a story, you know, uh, the four, there's 4,000 or so cars that were stolen in January and February, the latest data that I had available for, for the story. You know, typically that number's about half or, bo- or below for at least the past 20 years or so. And it, it, I, if you ask law enforcement, of course, they would point to the reforms that happened in, in 2021 uh, and at, at, the, at the legislative level. And I, I think that the, even the legislature acknowledged that maybe they went a little far with, with those reforms. So they peddled back this year things like Terry stops. So where a law enforcement officer pulls somebody over and they can detain someone, they can use force if they're still investigating something to keep them at a scene that has come back. And one thing that I've, I've been hearing over here is just concerns about the, the ability to, uh, you know, to, to go after suspects who are driving away in cars. I, and uh, so, you know, I, I think that there's just right now, um, uh, there's a lot of people who have become more more vocal on social media and elsewhere. We've never in Kitsap County, we'd never had a stolen cars page and before this last year. We now have one of those. People post the photo of the car being stolen. I talked to a, a victim of theft who they found out their car was stolen because there was a, a car next to theirs that was still running. That is, the engine was still on because the thief had jumped from that car, didn't even turn it off to theirs, and took off. So. I mean, we're we're seeing plenty of uh, of evidence of this, and and right now in Washington State, the the police can if if you're, you know, super drunk or or high or something, they can chase you if you it's in the commission of a violent felony, an assault, murder, they can chase you. But I think law enforcement would like to have uh, uh, more leeway um, to pursue suspects. And right now, the the legislature did not get to that bill, even though there was pretty strong support, Democrat and Republican, uh, to allow some further leeway that that did not pass uh, the legislature. I, I, I have a question for Josh on this front, actually. So, you know, I'm, I'm a business reporter. I, I like to I like to follow the money. And I know that the market for used cars has been exploding recently. I've, I've been in that market. It was tough. Uh, my, my father just sold his car. He was able to sell it for the same price he bought it for five years ago. Mm-hmm. How much how much is the, the used car market and, and just the, you know, the high demand for cars right now? How much what 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 role do you think that is playing in the in the rise in car theft? I think there's 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 certainly an intersection there. One one thing I would say is that people are I think becoming savvy and and doing things that safeguard their automobiles a little bit more. But uh, if your car's older, you know it, it's it, there's plenty of cars that are still without referencing them specifically 
sure many people know what I'm talking about, that you just need a shaved key and you're in the car and you're driving away. So I think, uh, unfortunately, as I, as I, uh, I've talked to, to some about this issue, you know, there's new, newer vehicles, um, you know, people with the means to afford uh, um, a fancier car, perhaps put it in a garage at night where it can't be stolen um, as easily at least, um, I, you know, it, it seems like it's a, it's a problem that's, that's affecting, it's affecting older vehicles. So I don't, it's a really good question, um, frankly. If you've got, what's that, that system on star, whatever it's called, if you, you know, don't, aren't there systems now that'll, your car will just be tracked all the time anyway, it gets stolen. You don't, maybe the cops don't have to, to jump in their cruiser and chase that car when you've got constant satellite updates. I don't know what you do. Wait for it to run out of gas. And, and, and there are some systems that you can even remotely slow your car down, right? And, and bring yeah. it to a stop. Maybe, maybe folks could try putting, a, putting an air tag in their car. An air tag, <laughs> right. It exactly. Find my car. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we asked our uh, community feedback club that KUOW has here. You just go to KUOW.org slash feedback. And we were asking about... Um, about local crime and return to the office, because that's part of this is, is like, well, where are the workers um, and, and, and what's the effect of, of, our, of our sort of ghost town parts of downtown? So Justin told us, I avoided Third Avenue near Pike and Pine before the pandemic. I work six <laughs> blocks away. As long as I keep my distance, I feel safe. I hope we'll devote the resources to intervene and provide treatment. Um, uh, redirection, encouragement to people inclined to loiter there because nothing short of that's ever going to make that area safe. Jim says people in my office have mentioned concerns about crime downtown. Our building has offered seminars on self-defense. I don't come downtown to work much anymore, not so much for safety, but because downtown is blighted, boarded up stores, homeless encampments, no enforcement of the laws, almost no peace pre- uh, police presence. The problem is not just violent crime, but all types of crime and circumstances that make people uncomfortable. And finally, this listener who didn't give a name said, I've worked at the Pike Place Market through the pandemic. At night, I would avoid the Pike Corridor, always very watchful entering the Westlake Light Rail. It's great to see more people out and about feeling safer because of the police presence on 3rd. I miss all the businesses that are gone. Salute those who stayed. If more people return to work downtown, maybe more businesses will return. But I think it'll be a long time, if ever, before things are as vibrant as they used to be. Um, so maybe this is the final question, but Joni, did you, do you have an update on this? It wasn't just defund police. The idea was stand up these um, unarmed, you know, not, non, yeah, uh, other, other interventions if you, what you need is not a, a cop with a gun. So how's that coming? So as it was explained to me, the unarmed uh, force was something that was supposed to be planned this year and presented, you know, and up and running fully uh, next year. So it hasn't, there, there are something like uh, 12 to 14 community service officers out there, but the program that you're referring to isn't really up and running yet. But I think it's important what, what these folks who are writing to you are saying. There is an idea, and the mayor certainly embraces it, that employees coming back obviously creates a safer feeling all around, you know, more people, more eyes, more cell phone cameras. But there's a caveat to, to even the way some of the companies have been talking about how they're coming back. You'll notice Amazon is not setting a date anymore because they set so many dates and they had to eat, eat those and, and take it back. And plus, in the world of tech and many other uh, industries, work from home, the, you know, the word of flexibility 
Um, this is like the number one job perk for folks. Uh, Bloomberg reported that 64% of people say the ability to work anywhere affects whether they will stay with their employer. And so the, these companies know this. So, so you will get more people coming back, more eyes on the problem, more cell phone cameras on the problem. But it's not going to be like it was. And that's why that one person was correct. It's not going to come back like it was in 2019 because return to work for some people will mean I'll go to a meeting or two, hang around a little bit just to you know hang out with my colleagues. And then I'm leaving. These folks aren't going to wait till five o'clock to join the big traffic. And they probably won't be there very many days because the way the, uh, the big tech companies are doing it, everything is through your manager, your team leader. So, and everybody's asking for flexibility. It's really important to people. So it won't be the same numbers for the same hours in my estimation. Any yeah. final thoughts would, on this before we move on? Yes, Josh. I would just add, you know, I think that we saw just a, a really a paradigm shift, you know, dramatic changes with um, how we all, um, uh, it, how society, how we've approached law enforcement around the country in the wake of George Floyd and others deaths like we we really did a, a reckoning here and and the and those who pushed for those would of course say you know that the number of, of people killed at that and in law enforcement incidents would dropped you know from 50 to 20 from between 2020 and 2021 and mm. talked to a mom um you know who's whose son was killed by kent police he, uh the they were trying to pull him over for expired tabs and it led to a fatal confrontation and and so there's there's hope here I think that we established, I, and I've talked about this before on the show, about the tools in the toolbox. And cops have been asked to play so many roles in society. And I think that maybe with this rethinking, there are more uh, behavioral health specialists um, um, in law in police departments. Uh, you know, maybe within this rethinking, maybe we're we're onto something. And 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 I, you know, I'd like to I'd like to play the optimist here to finish things out. Thank you. That's Kitsap Sons, Josh Farley. We're with also business insiders Catherine Long and political analyst Joni Balter. And this is Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Totally different subject here is we're covering some of the, the interesting issues this week. Josh, this judge ruled that the Navy cannot use Washington State parks as training grounds. You've covered this story. Why would the Navy want to train at a state park? Sure. Well, OK, so that. That's a big question, Bill. Uh, basically, so SEALs in, often embed, they go aboard submarines, some of which are based here, like submarines like the USS Ohio and the USS Michigan. Navy uh, SEALs, by the way, I should point out, special forces, yeah, yes. Special forces, exactly. Uh, and and so, in fact, we see them training in, in our local waters sometimes in these submersibles where it's it's. You, it's it's it is it is kind of strange. You look out sometimes, and you'll see a little bit of wake and uh, and an antenna sticking up, and, and you're like, "That's not that. That's clearly not a recreate. You know, somebody going water skiing." Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's kind of strange. Um, but so they they do this training, of course, and and up here where we have so-called cold water environments. I don't need to tell you about how cold the sound is, yeah. but it's good. For, it's good for training and. Uh, Thurston County Judge James Dixon on Friday basically said, I'm sorry, that's creepy. Uh, we, yeah. we don't want you doing this. In some ways, it's I think the Navy, um, it's un, it's unfortunate for for the Navy because they, they kind of had a, a smaller group of state parks, including over here in Illahee, uh, Illahee State Park, where they could train at. They had for many years and they really essentially 
got more aggressive with their new concept, going to um, 28 parks. They, they, they wanted to do uh, more training at, at different areas within Puget Sound that perhaps aren't as friendly uh, as say the Kitsap Peninsula is towards um, such Navy training. And, and so maybe they shot themselves in the foot a, a little bit with that. Uh, they, it did pass the, the state commission in 2021, the state parks commission did approve, uh, although with a much narrower scope, you ha- they had to train at night. Uh, it was a four, three vote, but now with the judge's decision, uh, they're going to have to, to back off. The Navy's not even a party here. It, it will come down to whether the state commission appeals this. Um, they're considering it, and we don't really know where, where things will go from here. Anybody else have questions like I do for Josh? I can fire away if you'll, you know. I, I have a question. Josh, th- that, that, that word creepy, that was, a, that was yeah. a direct quote from the judge, if yeah. I recall. Is that, that his, his legal reasoning in this case, the, the yeah. doctrine of creepiness? The doctrine of creepiness, exactly, and 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 of course, I think that there's that perception of if it's not it's not necessarily a real thing. They, you know, clearly they they would only be using the parks at nighttime. But if if a single person that wants to recreate in state parks that we all pay for, we all care for, that are our parks, and says, I don't know, Navy SEALs showing up there, I'm I'm. I'm not going, you know, I think that's what um, part of what motivated the judge's decision here is it would deter park use. Uh, Joni, by the way, your microphone is muted, Joni. Uh, Josh, is how, could they use private beaches or go to a, a play a city oh, that doesn't ab- mind ab- the Navy SEALs? Absolutely. And they do. And and they're, and remember, our state parks are, you know, they're, they certainly have uh, prominent shorelines around Puget Sound and the Salish Sea. Mm-hmm. But city of Bremerton has an agreement. Uh, they've uh, they've used other jurisdictions, private property landowners, uh, by all means, any they can they can invite them in to do do such training for sure. I mean, so, I, I can think of a I can think of a host of things that deter me from using state parks. Chief among them, Canada geese. If we can get a judge to <laughs> rule on those freaking geese, that would be fantastic. You can, if you can get them called creepy, you have an avenue. It's, it's under the creepy doctrine, of, the creepy as we've doctrine, established. You know, you, but I love that the judge that. used Thank that you. word, yeah. and and more importantly, that he um, felt that using parks in this way is is against the park's mission. Uh, I get it. Navy SEALs are, you know, kick-ass part of the American military. Of course, we need them and we need them to be well-trained, but I don't think the parks or the state parks are the right uh, spot for that. I really don't. I think they could use federal land. They could use, as you mentioned, private land, as you mentioned, for some reason, the city of Bremerton is on board with this, at least in a couple locations or one location. Uh, so I think I think it's a good decision. Okay, well, well, we'll watch. We'll see if it's appealed, et cetera. Um, we are going to take a short break on Week in Review, and we've got more news of the week to, uh, to wrap up for you and discuss. So don't go anywhere. Right back on KUOW in a moment. This is Bill Radke. You have help. When it comes to understanding this week's news, Business Insider's Catherine Long, contributing columnist Joni Balter, Kitsap Sons Josh Farley, uh, moving on this week. You know, I would say America's most famous living orca was captured in Puget Sound in 1970, taken from her family, sold to a Florida theme park and renamed Lolita. And for decades, there's been a call to free Lolita. And Josh, it sounds like... A Lolita Tokate might be released and might come home? 
It's entirely possible, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. That that could happen. Um, I partnered with another reporter on some coverage recently. It, it It's by no means a done deal, and there are lots of risks involved at this point. There's been a, other efforts to bring Lolita, a.k.a. Tokate, home um, for, for some time. This is a whale that's been in captivity for 50 years, and, and it depends on if you're in Florida or if you're in Washington. In Florida, it seems like there's really growing momentum. Um, a, a man named Pritam Singh, who's a, a developer and a philanthropist, has, has put up a, a million dollars towards an effort to let's let's get let's get Tokate home, let's get Lolita home, and uh, of course the Lummi tribe um, has been instrumental and in, in pushing for this as as well. But we really. The, the issue is this is a whale that's not not performing anymore and has been sick. We know um, uh, probably with pneumonia, uh, w- the conditions uh, in Florida, how how great are they? How much harm? Uh, how tough of a journey would it be to bring this whale back to uh, the Salish Sea? Would a net pen be necessary? Um, there's a lot of uh, regulatory bureaucratic hurdles, but not the least of which, uh, you know, uh, uh, Governor Inslee, whose office I reached out to, you know, hasn't taken a position on whether this is a, a, a good or a bad idea yet, because is it if what if, you know, we, we all don't want to think about this, but uh, what this is a nearly 60 year old whale that that might not survive the, the passage. So um it's kind of uh, still very much remains to be seen, but for the first time, all of these things are lining up that a move could happen uh, in in the months ahead. And he, Gosh, uh, it, yes, I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go, Go ahead, Bill. I, I would wanted to ask. That's exactly what I wanted to, a, uh, to ask. Any uh, either information or just questions from Josh, who knows more about this than I do. Yes, Catherine. How, how does one go about transporting an orca whale across the country? Yeah. <laughs> Well, good question. If you look at, um, you know, Seattle Times for for um, uh, Linda Linda Mapes has had just some great, um, amazing coverage, of course, of of the orcas and their photographers have done a great job capturing this. Uh, you know, it's it's not pretty, um, and um, it. I don't know. I would. I, I definitely would would Google some photos to kind of get get yourself around the idea of of picking up a multi ton animal. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. It's really amazing that that they can do this. Un- unfortunately, though, I think it was incredibly emotionally taxing. And of course, between I think um, the the 60s and into the 70s, something like 270 orcas were were captured. Unfortunately, we uh, as a you know as this became a popular tactic to take these whales elsewhere, um, we became good at at doing such transports um, and. To go on in history, the other tragic example through all of this is um, is Keiko. Uh, if anybody has seen Free Willy, uh, Keiko was in in Oregon for a long time, and Keiko was released off of Iceland, and sadly did not make it due to pneumonia. So um, it's it's just it. There's a lot of risks around this. This is such a sentimental story on so many sides. You know, it it almost feels like time will overwhelm. Uh, the procedures, the slow rolling procedures. You know, we can't tell if this whale could actually survive the trip. It sounds, you know, really difficult, especially because she's been sick. And I, I, I just hope that, you know, all the attention here 
is somehow uh, helpful to the whales, the, the local um, population that we have here and some of the things that um, just discussing this brings up, like the waters here are much different than when she left. Uh, they're noisier, they're probably more polluted, they, there's less salmon. So, we, and, and then the idea of her coming back to a pen is, is that really worth all the, the effort of it? Because she wouldn't even be able to swim with her family. And by the way, her mom might be alive. My understanding is that it's not 100% sure, but there's a, there's a matriarch that's in, you know, in her 80s or something who's still alive in, in, in the Salish Sea. Uh, and Catherine, I didn't realize uh, that you were, you, you were a teenage volunteer at the Seattle Aquarium. Yeah, that's right. That's right. My love for my love for orcas goes way back. Mm. Uh, I, I have another question actually about this for for Josh. Um, you know, I, I read coverage about the this debate over whether or not to return Tukate to, to the Salish Sea. And I recall last year, the owner of the, the sea aquarium telling a San Juan County Port Commissioner that he didn't quote, he, did, he, did, he didn't want, quote, those hippies stealing his whale. <laughs> Uh, that quote stuck with me. And I'm, I'm wondering if, um, you know, has the, the Seaquarium owner changed his mind about that? Or, or is he still pretty set on keeping the whale down in Miami? Uh, I, we don't actually know. There's, um, there's a fair amount of people around this story that just are not, uh, are not being uh, incredibly forthcoming. Um, there's not a lot of reg regulation that's also happening, which is, which is interesting. Once the once Tokate stopped performing, once essentially uh, there there were some regular essentially um, some things that stopped being tracked, and even in recent months, there's been concerns about what kind of food, uh, what kind of food Tokate, aka Lolita, is getting, um, and and, and what how the so, conditions where uh, where where the whales being kept. So if you don't perform, you get lesser food. Is that is that the way it works? <laughs> I don't because know she that. doesn't have those regulators anymore to uh, to see how things are going for her. Who who's actually yeah. watching yeah. to see what her condition is and how she's treated? That's a good question, and and I think a lot of activists in Florida are really pushing for that. Can we get logs? Can to 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 kind of get an idea here? But there is there's still a lot of things that are shrouded in mystery surrounding this. Okay, we'll keep following the. The, the possible, uh, maybe far-fetched return of Tokate, uh, renamed Lolita, from Florida back to the Salish Sea. Continuing on here on Week in Review, I wanted to talk about a, another, we get this UN, yet another United Nations update on climate change. Uh, it's increasing, and we've barely done anything about it. And Catherine, our governor, Inslee is a climate activist compared to other governors, but he still signed a transportation package recently that's going to pay for a lot of highways. Yeah, that's right. You know, every time the, the UN comes out with a new climate report, it just makes me want to curl up into a ball and yeah. <laughs> try to block out the news. You know, every every time the news seems more dire uh, in this in this round. The report says that we need to take action in the next three years if we want to limit global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. The, the chair of the committee behind the report said, quote, it's now or never. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing on one hand a, a highway expansion. On the other hand, um, you know, rules that would ban the sale of new gasoline powered private cars after the year 2030. Uh, we'd only be driving new EVs, electric vehicles, after that year. Um, so there's some give and take. That being said, I just 
I, I wish that, that, um, you know, it, it's great that hopefully we're all going to be driving new electric cars. We're all going to be driving Teslas after 2030. Um, yeah. And just to add some detail on that, um, the, this idea of no more gas powered car sales by 2030, that was a, that was proposed as a requirement. It got watered down to a goal but that's yeah. okay, says the state Senate Transportation Chair. Marco Lea says gas-powered vehicles will go away even if we don't outlaw them. You can still buy a horse in Washington, <laughs> yeah. and you can still travel by horse if you want to. You know, just because new technology comes out doesn't mean that we ban old technologies. And when you look at the major manufacturers that have already announced they're going to stop producing internal combustion engines, several in 2030, more in 2035, by the end of the 2030s decades, this is going to happen. We're just not going to require it to happen. Josh, we got to get more cars and trucks through Gorst, right? Yeah, exactly. I think politics of today versus politics of tomorrow is coming in. Uh, it's easy to make promises today, uh, things in 2030, 2035. Mm -hmm. And the rea realities are today that lawmakers serve from all over the state in areas where there's traffic congestion. And in my backyard here in an area called Gorse, which is on Sinclair Inlet, you have to drive around it to go to Tacoma uh and from bremerton um or vice versa and you know they, they've been sort of planning a project for some time now we're talking about something in the neighborhood of half a billion dollars because of the you know there's uh environmental sensitivities with the with a, uh, the gorse creek that runs through there and the estuary and so there's there's a lot of things this project would do but it would also add lane capacity and so i you know I know for this area, um, we have an expanding port of Bremerton, Belfair, and out to Mason County is growing. Uh, of course, there's a ton of new houses that are being built in all over Kitsap County, but but in Port Orchard and Bremerton. And there's been a bottleneck for many years that people sit in, whether they work at the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard or Naval Base Kitsap. It's it, it, This has just been a, 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 an issue for a while. And they finally are are in this transportation package putting $74 million into it to plan it. But again, uh, not exactly on board with uh, with the uh, um, with countering climate change here. Right. It's it's very it, um, there is some money, you know, that they've the state has just very roughly identified just a just, hey, let's do some bike and pedestrian improvements. And they slapped a figure on there of, you know, a few million or so, something like that. They I don't really know if we have a, a, a plan that way. Uh, and it's uh, the, the Navy, meanwhile, is also a part of this, because if we were to have an earthquake, a tsunami, some, you know, generated by an earthquake, something could happen. How would people other than, of course, uh, ferries, uh, uh, Hood Canal Bridge, the other direction, how people get off of the Kitsap Peninsula? So there's some resilient, you know, they call it the you know, resiliency that uh, that is being addressed with this, too. So just wanted to shine a spotlight on a, kind of a local project. But uh, that's that's part of this is there's so much political support. I see very little in Kitsap County where all the mayors, all the county commissioners, business leaders, uh, are, are yeah, the you know Congressman Derek Kilmer. Everyone is really pushing for this, and yet it is, uh, uh, admittedly, a, a, a you know it will add it will add carbon emissions. Joni, congratulations! You get the final word on climate change. Well, last summer and many of the summers before that, you know, I think I think we're all changing because we have learned, you know, the heat dome. We're learning in, in a, 
a bunch of ways that climate change is not something that's in the future anymore. It's right here all over the West. It's, it's, it's changing the experience of summer. The fires so early in so many places, climate change is right here with us. So we have to be, I mean, I get that the, um, the transportation package is just, you know, a goal and that's, that's a little lame. We need something a little stronger than that for, for our role in, in gas powered vehicles. Okay, uh, we're going to smile about something, and it's not climate change. So in the last two and a half minutes of the program, I always want to ask you anything hopeful to you, silver linings. Um, Catherine, anything putting a spring in your step in spring? Yeah, I'm smiling about the fact that we have our uh, first black woman justice on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I think that's very cool. Ketanji Brown-Jackson is confirmed. And uh, I'm smiling about the fact that Everyone who's listening to this is going to be wearing their their masks, right? So that I can keep going to live music this summer. Yes. <laughs> Just bought a bunch of tickets. I really like those concerts to happen. <laughs> Where are you going? Uh, I, I'm going to go see a show at the Paramount next week. And I'm going to go to the, the Day In, Day Out Festival and then the Thing Festival happening in August. All right. Enjoy. Uh, Joni, how about you? Well, you mentioned spring. And so I'll chime in and support that 73 degree days, although there are not going to be too many of them in the next few days. And the U.S. Coffee Championships in Boston, it's the Coffee Olympics, and we have sent two Seattle uh, baristas there to compete. So just pull for them and smile. How dare they even hold them outside of Seattle? How about you, Josh? Oh, Bill, we are 13 minutes away from the opening, uh, the first pitch in what is touted to be a highly anticipated uh, Seattle Mariners season with J-Rod. And I, I am, I think there's a lot of excitement around the Mariners this year. And uh, if, if barring blizzard-like conditions in Minnesota in April, um, we could debate about uh, building an open air, uh, you know, a stadium in, in Minneapolis uh, for games in April until the cows come home. But uh, that should have had the roof. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, apparently there's not enough room, but that's another story. And just happy to see the Mariners getting back. Yeah, yesterday's opening day canceled because of snow. It was 73 here yesterday. I've said it before. If you want warm weather in April, you've got to think Seattle, Washington. It's always true. Um, And I've just arranged to have that on my headstone. Quote, there's a lot of excitement around the Mariners this year. So good stuff. Uh, that's Josh it's almost Farley. like predicting it causes big trouble. Yes. Uh, military and Bremerton reporter at the Kitsap Sun, Josh Farley, political analyst and contributing columnist, Joni Balter, business insider, senior tech reporter, Catherine Long. That's your week in review team this week. Great to see you. And thanks for the information and the, and the thoughts on all of this. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Uh, our show is produced by Kevin Kniestet, and it's Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza who give us the valuable work on social media and live streaming the program. And Bernard Wellat makes it all sound great running the board. I'm Bill Radke. Thank you for listening, and let's do this again in another week, Week in Review.